0: We have been given another tremendous privilege by the gracious God of heaven to come together tonight to sing hymns of praise and adoration to God, to in fact lift up our voices in prayer to Him, to sing these beautiful hymns of praise to His name, to even in a bit surround His table, to engage in worship that is described as both in spirit and in truth, John 4 verse 24. As was already mentioned a moment ago by Brother Ted is just prefacing the reading, we will continue our study of the Revelation tonight. As we continue to move through this book of the Revelation, we have been reminded time and again of the greatness of Christ, and that reminds us of the song that we just now sang, reminding us of what God did for you and for me. And time and again through this book, we will notice He will hold our hand through thick and through thin if we will remain faithful to Him and bless us eternally with a place and a home perhaps greater and richer than you and I can right now comprehend and fathom. The book of Revelation is such that to this point we have discussed a number of things and since this chapter does occur directly along with what we learned last week, a moment of review would be in order. So far, the drama that has played out before us has been, in fact, enticing. It has been encompassing. It keeps us on the edge of our seat, pondering and contemplating that which will occur next as we think about the revealing of the various ideas contained within that seven-sealed book. In chapters 4 and 5, in the praise to God, we remember that in His right hand was a book sealed seven times. The only one in heaven or earth or throughout the entire universe worthy of opening the seals and revealing the contents was none other than the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 129. As Jesus took that book from his right hand, we notice in chapter six, he began to loose six of the seals. In the loosing of them, we were reminded of the terribleness and atrocity associated with human conflict and warfare. But at the same time, we notice the character and power of God's overruling providence over all of it. In the fifth seal, the souls beneath the altar crying out, How long, O Lord, before our cause is vindicated? We will find tonight that we will have a partial answer to that question. And notice also in the opening of the sixth seal, the dramatic effect of God's ultimate wrath poured out upon those who have been not submissive to His will, to those who in fact have been rebellious. That brought us to chapter 7, last Lord's Day evening, in which there was a seal placed upon the forehead of those who were in fact God's servants. That seal signified their protection from the onslaught of his wrath to those who in fact would be justified in receiving it. However, there is yet one seal that hasn't been loosened and opened. We come tonight to chapter number 8. In reminding ourselves about where we have come for those, Might we then notice that as we begin chapter 8 this evening, we will in fact open that seventh seal, but we will not finalize and close the matters related to it until we finish chapter 11. The book's going to keep us on the edge of our seat a bit longer to find out fully what will transpire before the completion of the seventh seal, but we will begin its consideration tonight. In particular, we shall now find that in the opening of the seventh seal, seven trumpets will be blown. We will in fact see four of them blown tonight, but we shall have to wait three more chapters before finally the seventh one will be blown and will ultimately be brought to the realization of the fullness and completion of the seven seals that were to have been opened. And thus, without further ado, let us look intently then into the first few verses of chapter 8 recognizing and preparing ourselves for the dramatic nature of the beginning point of the opening of, these, of this seventh seal. I'd invite you to read with me verses 1 through 6 of Revelation 8. Revelation 8, verses 1 through 6. And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel came and stood at the altar having a golden censer. And there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it into the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake and the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. We will, a bit later in the lesson, pick up there and complete the chapter, but that section, in fact, begins somewhat of a new idea. We would do well to appreciate as nearly as we can the first six verses to set the stage for understanding what it means to blow the seven trumpets and the gigantic messages to be obtained from them. And hence, let us begin back again with verse number one. As you notice, when he had opened the seventh seal, so we have now arrived at that point when the Lamb of God is opening the seventh seal, that tremendous book that had been, in fact, with writing both on the front side and back side, containing a large lesson from the God of heaven and a significant one at that. We now have arrived at the finality of ultimately loosing it and revealing its contents. And notice that there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. That takes on an even greater significance when we recall the scene of Revelation 4 verse 8. On that occasion, those four living creatures that were before the throne, it says on that occasion that both day and night they praise God and cry, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Given the ceaseless character of that praise, it is significant There was a small interval of silence. This was a momentous occasion. Isn't it interesting how on many occasions a very gifted speaker, when a very dramatic and significant point is to be made in a speech or in a given presentation, a pause will occur in which the attention of those that are listening is gained and thus following that they are prepared then with great anxiousness to receive the significant message that is to be presented. It would seem that this silence that took place in heaven drew the attention of those present to the character of the opening of the seventh seal, the blowing of the seven trumpets, and the character of what was now to be revealed. It was a significant event. But let us notice also that in the verse that followed, isn't it did interesting. John said, I saw. We must again remember that this is a visual book. John, what you see, write in a book, Revelation 1.11. What did John see? He said, I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. We notice that the word thee precedes the reference to these angels. Apparently, they were a specified rank or character of angel. John said, I saw thee seven angels. But not only that, to each one of them was given a trumpet we immediately learn another lesson. What role does the trumpet play in the revelation of God as well as in the nature of the Old Testament? How often does our mind rush back to those scenes in which the trumpet heralded a scene of judgment? It made known a character of a warning of some type. The references to that given effect would be more than would be worthy for me to list, but I have listed a few. Would you recall with me the scene of Exodus 19 and 20? The children of Israel gathered at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses had ascended that mount. And what was it that was blown by those at the base of the camp, signaling the momentous event of the occasion? Trumpets. The blowing of those trumpets signaling then the greatness of the fact a law was being given a new covenant was being put in place. It was the Mosaic Laws, what we would know it as. But that's but one occasion of so very many others. One of the most interesting ones to me, in fact, is in Jeremiah 4.19, when in the days of the prophet Jeremiah, the express statement is found, the sounding of a trumpet, the alarm for war. In essence, the blowing of the trumpet signaled to the people of God the beginning of the character of warfare on that occasion, And thus, the blowing of the trumpet was a signal to contemplate, to begin, in fact, that character of warfare and military action. The blowing of a trumpet at a time of warning. A signal representing the character of God's judgment against those worthy of receiving that judgment. Notice also in Hosea chapter 5, verse 8, The blowing of a trumpet yet again here signaling those that were guilty of iniquity and how that God was displeased with them and that the blowing of the trumpet signaled his action against them. It would thus be such that here we might take note that in the blowing of these trumpets that are to follow, These are in essence sounds of warning, characteristics of God's judgment against a world of iniquity that's opposed and as such worthy of receiving the judgment that shall be poured out upon them. That's the meaning then of what shall occur in the blowing of these trumpets over the next three chapters. But the specifics are oh so interesting and oh so intriguing at that. In chapter 9 verses 20 and 21, we have in some instances a dramatic confirmation of the conclusion that we have just reached. It's always a wonderful thing when the Bible will confirm that what one thinks based on an intense exegesis is in fact true. Read with me verses 20 and 21 of Revelation 9 if you would. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders nor of their sorceries nor of their fornication nor of their thefts. The blowing of these trumpets heralded then signals of warning to these various classes of ungodly individuals, and it was, of course, the intent that they would heed the warning and repent. But the sad note of the revelation is, again in verse 20, that many of them didn't. They repented not. Isn't it did a tragic thing to realize the goodness of God toward the human family, and yet he sent his son to die for him, and yet so many refused to repent at the power and love of God. We are beginning to see the greatness here of that very scene and that very idea. As we march on to verse number 3, might we recognize and note, That a picture could be in order just to whet our appetite for what is to follow. And it was supposed to be right there. I looked at that right before I came, so I'm not sure why that isn't showing. Oh, the interesting matter of computers, I suppose. There's a picture supposed to be there of seven angels, each one of them having a trumpet in his hand, each one of them colored in the character described by the nature of the scene here in Revelation 8. And as they are presented and seen, it is a rather dramatic picture, at least understanding the nature of the greatness of this event. But perhaps if we return to that previous scene at the bottom of that given transparency, might we notice in verse three, yet a different angel appears. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer. And there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. The mention made then of another angel. But this one came and stood at a very specific location. It says before the altar. And to our mind races many references in the Old Testament to an altar. In the tabernacle, the ancient tabernacle, as discussed in Exodus and many books following, there were two altars present. There was, of course, the altar of burnt offering that was situated just outside the holy place. And as the case was, on that altar were various animals offered for the expiation of sin. But there was also another altar there was an altar inside the, most holy, inside the holy place. It was the altar of incense. It sit just before the veil, beyond which was the mercy seat, below which was, of course, the Ark of the Covenant. We might have to wonder which altar was this. We are not left long to wonder. For notice, verse 3 says, incense was given. Reference was here made to the altar of incense. Again, positioned in the holy place before the veil, beyond which was the most holy place where the very presence of God took place on that mercy seat. Exodus 25, verses 9 and 10. And hence, we are here in discussion of the altar of incense. But as that thought comes to mind, an angel came and stood at that altar and this angel had a golden censer. We should also remember that the high priest was commanded by God to offer an offering of incense on that altar twice each day, once in the morning, once in the evening. As those, altar, as those offerings were made, what was the symbolic importance of the offering of incense? First, it symbolized and signified the purity and presence of God amongst them and also the godliness of their life. But apparently from the clue of Psalm 141, verse 2, it represented the prayers of the ancient Hebrews that ascended as a sweet aroma before the very presence of the God of heaven. And that is a beautiful picture, isn't it? The pleasantness of their prayers ascending to God, who in fact would hear and deliver them from the oppressions and difficulties which they faced. In this scene before us in Revelation 8, 3, we notice that significantly... In addition to the incense, it says, he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. It is a significant event then that even here it would seem again from Psalm 141, verse 2, the same idea is to be appreciated. Here was the very prayers of the saints ascending as it were a sweet incense aroma to the very mind, thought, and character of the God of heaven perhaps it'd be an appropriate time to share a lesson that would be of dramatic import even for us. And that lesson would no doubt relate to the power of prayer. We are each aware of the fact that many times we understand that power, the powers that be are opposed to God. They seem to have little interest in the things of righteousness. They seem to be directed in ways that are basically sinful and full of iniquity. And at times we may wonder what power do we as Christians have. The authorities that be, be they in Cookville, Nashville, Washington, or anywhere else, sometimes don't seem interested in things of God. Maybe we think that we're hopeless. We have little influence, little power, little opportunity for the accomplishment of God's will. May we never think as that. We learn a dramatic lesson here. Those to whom John wrote this book found themselves in a more desperate situation than we. Here were saints, often imprisoned and put to death simply because they were Christians. Rome had no interest in what they thought. Rome couldn't care less about the perspective of these Christians. And yet John said, there's a God in heaven who hears your prayers. Not only does he hear them, they arise as sweet incense before his presence. He finds it a very pleasant and sweet-smelling aroma. You and I should remember that there is one in control who is more powerful than those in Nashville, Cookfield, Washington, or anywhere else. God rules in the kingdoms of men, Daniel 4.25. And as such, when we petition him by way of prayer, we can rest assured that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, James 5.16. Those thoughts brought to my mind a text found in Psalm 34. I would like to read that again. In Psalm 34, let us read verses 15 through 19 and listen to the power of prayer as it's described in this beautiful text of so long ago. Psalm 34, beginning in verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and His ears are open unto their cry. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth, and delivereth them out of all their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. Many a person, no doubt, has been encouraged and comforted by those two references that the Lord hears the cries of those that are His own. To those who out of a contrite heart will appeal unto Him, He hears their afflictions and has promised to deliver out of all of them. Notice in the Revelation, those who in fact were suffering so at the hands of the terrible Roman Empire, John said, Your prayers are heard by God. Don't give up on God. Don't give up on Christ. You be faithful. You remain loyal and with great allegiance to Him. Your prayers are heard. With that thought about the lesson then to be learned concerning the power of prayer, may we notice in verses 5 then and 6 what next happened in regard to this angel. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire out of the altar and cast it into the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. And the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. We notice the dramatic effect. Voices, thunderings, lightnings and an earthquake was what John perceived. We immediately again notice those same four things were mentioned in Exodus chapters 19 and 20. And in that same order. There the scene was again the quaking of that Mount Sinai as the law of Moses was given. It was a dramatic event heralding and signaling the tremendous importance of what was taking place. And so it is here. As these matters then bring to our mind that, notice how that directly leads us back to Revelation 6 verse 10. Those souls martyred underneath the altar cried, O Lord, how long until... Holy and true, the cause for which we died is vindicated. We're beginning to see that these tremendous upheavals upon earth are here described, and in symbolic character, they are now presenting the answer to the question of those saints. God hasn't forgotten them. Though they were died for the cause of Christ, though their life in the flesh was taken, they were not forgotten by the God of heaven. Their cause will be vindicated. Jesus Christ will triumph at last, and there shall be safety and security for all those that remain faithful to him. Isn't it interesting that in verses 5 and 6, we have then another dramatic effect of the warning. Now, we should not appreciate a literal character of earthquakes. And the other things here mentioned, for the earth is always filled with earthquakes. There's earthquakes that go on all the time around our planet. There are thunderstorms that present thunder and lightning all the time. But we notice that those often in the Bible are used by God to signal significant and divine matters in which great upheavals in terms of either physical or spiritual things are taking place. And we shall note again that very matter. We shall only have to begin to note then that these were all preparatory to the seven angels sounding those trumpets. I wonder what happened when the first angel blew his trumpet. Let us read verses 7 through 13 and see what happened when the first four of them blew their trumpets. The first angel sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood, and they were cast upon the earth, and the third part of trees was burnt up, and all the green grass was burnt up. And the second angel sounded, And as it were, a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea, and the third part of the sea became blood. And the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and the third part of the ships were destroyed. And the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven burning as it were a lamp. And it fell upon the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood. And the third part of the waters became wormwood, and many died, and many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. And the fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars. So as the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Whoa, whoa. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpets of the trumpet of the three angels which are yet to sound. The dramatic event has captured our attention, I'm sure, to listen to the descriptions and the vivid imagery as it's here presented. Let us revisit verse 7, the blowing of the first of these trumpets. As the first trumpet is sounded, We notice that immediately there followed hail and fire mingled with blood, and these were cast upon the earth. Hail and fire mingled with blood, cast upon the earth. What was the consequence, the result? We are not left long to wonder. Verse 7, third part of the trees was burnt up, and all green grass was burnt up. If I might make a comment, our King James translators did not do us the greatest favor there is no word trees in the original greek rather all that was signified is that the third part on this occasion of the earth was burnt up and all the green grass there's no explicit reference to trees per se but might we note a third of the entire land area the earth itself burnt up as well as all of the grass everywhere And as we make note of that fact, to our mind comes an that question, what does that mean? Perhaps a great signal and a tremendous hint is found in the Old Testament, as is often true in the Revelation. In the book of Exodus, as the children of Israel found themselves in Egyptian bondage, there were ten plagues poured out upon the Egyptians. One of them seems tremendously reminiscent of this one. They seem tremendously similar. It was the seventh one. On that occasion, we remember that a plague of hail was brought upon the land of Egypt. And in that plague of hail, back in Exodus 7, it's mentioned that fire was mingled with hail. And as that was brought then upon them, what was it that took place? What was the scene? What was the event? The children of Israel, of course, were in captivity. But yet Moses and Aaron had pled with Pharaoh to let my people go. These plagues were brought upon the Egyptians as a punishment for their rebelliousness and their sin. Not only that, what else might we recollect? Did the children of Israel suffer the hail and the fire? The text expressly says that in the land of Goshen, there was neither fire nor hail. Only the Egyptians received that plague, not the children of Israel. Perhaps a dramatic lesson. These plagues poured out in Revelation chapter 8. The sounding of these trumpets and the tremendous things described are God's way of describing the terrible punishment and forcefulness upon those worthy of that punishment. God's elect, those sealed in the forehead, will not receive the effects of these matters. We now see why the sealing had to take place first in chapter 7. We will learn, in fact, in the blowing of trumpets 5, 6, and 7, those sealed in their foreheads with that seal of God do not receive these. They do not experience them. We're learning a dramatic lesson. Those faithful to God in any age and in any time will in fact perhaps endure afflictions upon earth like the third part symbolically here of the earth destroyed and the grass is burned. However, they are ultimately protected just like those were in the land of Goshen in the Old Testament. Though these plagues are poured out on the ungodly, they do not receive such. And what a tremendous promise that is. The very thought of that fact leads us to notice that the fraction one-third is mentioned. What does that mean? We understand that God is powerful enough to destroy this earth in the twinkling of an eye. After all, he made it just that fast. Why couldn't he destroy it that fast? Might we remember that that number one-third, it would seem from the context, means simply this... That since God could destroy it all, but yet symbolically stated not to, that is a word that that other two-thirds is a statement of the opportunity extended for repentance. Though some would, of course, receive the character of this punishment and perhaps lose their life, others would have opportunity to respond and to repent while yet they had opportunity. That number one, that fraction, one-third, will occur many times over the next couple of trumpet soundings. All the while, we notice this first angel in sounding indicates that though difficult times arise, there is protection for those that are God's own, even as was exemplified there in the seventh plague in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. How often does the Bible remind us that the land itself is also that which suffers due to sin? We are keenly aware that humans suffer due to sin. They are spiritually separated from God, Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2. But the Bible, how often does it note that the land suffers also due to the fact that man doesn't follow the ways of God. He corrupts and contaminates the land by the things that he does. Hosea chapter 4 verse 3 is but one example of many others. Where in the Old Testament God said the land mourns because of your sin. We seem to see here that even the land areas of the blowing of this first trumpet suffered due to the sinfulness of mankind. But what about the second trumpet? What does its blowing bring? Let us again look at verse number 8. This is a picture that... Uh, again is an artist's rendition, an attempt to illustrate and to show at least a portion of what will occur by virtue of the blowing of the first several of these trumpets, not just the first one. That makes me all the more curious as to why the previous picture didn't show if this one did, but again that's, that's just computers I suppose. I guess we could go back and see if it's there now. I guess not. with the sounding of the second trumpet. May we appreciate that another dramatic description is given. Verse 8, And the second angel sounded, and as it were a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea, and the third part of the sea became blood, and the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and the third part of the ships were destroyed." So we see on this occasion that as it were a great mountain cast down into the sea, the third part of the waters thereof are turned into blood, third part of the ships destroyed, and according to verses 7 and 8, also we notice the third part of those land creatures, the land, the sea creatures also died. As we then again ask, what does that mean? First, a great mountain as it were cast into the earth. Our mind perhaps would ask anything similar to that anywhere happened before in the nature of the word of God, symbolically or figuratively. We might remember the very first of the ten plagues also in the Old Testament. There in the scene of that occasion, we remember that the water was turned into blood as a characteristic that there was a power higher than the power of the Nile in control of what was taking place. The God of Moses and the God of Abram turned that water to blood and just as easily could turn it back to water. But for that period of a week when the water was blood, we learned that many of the creatures in the Nile died and there was a tremendous stench and smell. Might we notice something like that occurs again here. Third part of the creatures in the sea died. Isn't it interesting that on that occasion again, it was a lesson for the people of that day and time that there's a God in control and to those who are rebellious, they shall suffer under the punishment thereof. And what's more, we notice that God did that on behalf of those that were his own in an attempt to hearken unto their prayers. Exodus 2 verses 23 to 25. As we can see in this particular scene, The killing of the sea creatures reminds us perhaps of that statement in Zephaniah 1 verse 3. We learn there that God told the prophet to inform the people that all in the suffering due to sin, even the fishes of the sea, will I destroy as a symbolic, figurative nature of the power of sin and my wrath to be poured upon it. Maybe we are learning again that this second sounding, this second trumpet, is another impression, another emphatic one at that, illustrating God's wrath poured out upon the ungodly and how that even upon earth there is affliction and oppression. But that all the while makes us wonder about the third one, namely the sounding of the third angel. Might we notice as we consider that one that this one has caused no little amount of consideration through the years Partly because of the name. Let us again read verse 10. And the third angel sounded and there fell a great star from heaven. Burning as it were a lamp and it fell upon the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood. And the third part of the waters became Wormwood and many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. We again notice that a dramatic event occurs. This star, verse number 10, fell from heaven. And as it fell, it were as it were a lamp. It fell upon the third part of the waters. And those waters, as well as the sources or fountains thereof, became wormwood, because that was the name of this star. There have been those, of course, such. Powerful preachers as herald the character of the premillennial ideas. And they can captivate an audience by taking a verse like this one and showing pictures of a large meteor or star impacting earth and virtually destroying it. And they get people worked into a frenzy as they panic and are anxious about the nature of when will this happen. Might we again ask, what does this mean? Revelation is a book signifying the matters of truth. We ought not to appreciate that which is literal, for even the name helps us understand that fact. What is wormwood, and where have we read about that before? It's mentioned often in the Old Testament, and as often as has been the case, that helps us understand what its meaning will be here. I've listed a few verses for your consideration concerning wormwood. In Deuteronomy 29:18. Jeremiah nine fifteen, Jeremiah twenty three fifteen, Lamentations three nineteen, Amos five verse seven, just to name a few. In every instance, wormwood had a signal meaning. It represented the character of affliction in virtue of opposition to God and the punishment of heaven upon it. Every single time. Now, what is wormwood? Maybe that would be a secondary significance. I have, in fact listed for you that wormwood is a plant with a very bitter and disagreeable taste. And hence it signifies that which is unpleasing or displeasant, if you will, to God. In almost every instance, wormwood is mentioned along with gall, which is again another entity, another thing that is a disagreeable matter. When we see a star named Wormwood, we thus immediately appreciate all those significances indicating this is showing us the nature of that series of things disagreeable to God and His reaction to it. We shouldn't expect a literal star named Wormwood to fall from heaven and strike earth. That's not what the prophet is revealing. That's not what John is conveying to us. The bitterness to be observed in Wormwood... Reminds us of the opposite scene of Exodus 15. There, when the children of Israel left Egypt, they came to a place called Marah. There, there was water, but it was bitter. God told Moses to cast a tree into that water and it would become sweet and thus potable for the people. This is just the opposite. Here, the waters are made bitter. Again, illustrating the affliction and oppression to come upon those who are willing and stubborn enough to oppose God, who will not submit to His will, who will not humbly bow before the greatness of the God of heaven and bring their life into compliance to His will. Clearly, we may immediately think of the Roman Empire. They overlorded themselves over the Christians. They put them to death. They punished them. They made their life miserable. God wanted them to know, figuratively, there's a star going to fall, and Rome will fall with it. But you remain faithful. It'll be a bitter thing for them when it falls, and that came to pass a few hundred years after the events of this writing. Rome crumbled due to at least three different reasons. One of them was they opposed the God of heaven. They became to be a debauched society filled with sin and iniquity, and God finally rained his wrath upon them when they were crushed and overcome completely in 476 AD. It's a dramatic event to notice how hopeful this would have made the Christians of that day. In fact, a picture might be presented about this star called Wormwood. That's an artist's rendition. And as we've looked at each of these pictures, I keep trying to remind ourselves that that is, again, not to be taken as a literal thing, but in our mind's imagination. How we can imagine Wormwood, bitterness, representative of God's wrath upon those that are the ungodly. As we've discussed that matter, what about the fourth trumpet? We've arrived at verses 12 and 13. And the fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars. So as the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise." As we appreciate and think about that, we noticed the third part of the sun, moon, and stars became darkened, and that led to darkness for the third part of a day. That reminds us of the ninth plague discussed in the book of Exodus. As we think about that listing, notice the ninth one was darkness. And the text says the darkness was so keen it could be felt. Absolute, total darkness. But who experienced it? The Egyptians. There was light in the land of Goshen. The Israelites had light. Here was an absolute miracle by God where somehow a border for light was presented. In Egypt, they had no light, but in Goshen they did. We see yet one more time God pouring out the nature of the fourth plague as he had done so in the ninth plague earlier. The nature of his wrath upon the ungodly. Those like Rome and like any of any age it will not accept him. But the beauty is those that are faithful, those that are his own, they have his precious promise and day by day are able to understand that they've been sealed and do not suffer these matters. For they, though affliction may be with them for a time in the flesh, they look forward to a time when they shall be with him forevermore. The nature then of verse number 12 reminds us of language that we find in places like Isaiah 13 verse 10. In fact, in that text, the prophet almost identically used these very words, the sun will be darkened, the moon will be darkened, the stars will be darkened. What did it mean in Isaiah's day? Did it mean that there was literally an event in a time when there was darkness during the course of a third part of a day? No. That was, as the text indicates, a symbolic representation of the greatness and God's wrath poured out on the Assyrian nation because of their refusal to accept God and their opposition to Him. Here, what about Rome? They stood opposed to God. God was also going to pour out His wrath upon them, and that would occur in days to come. You and I, even centuries later, though, can take a dramatic lesson that though you and I in life may suffer difficulties, for God doesn't promise us a luxurious, smooth sailing physical path through life. He nonetheless does say, I'll be with you always, even unto the end of the world, Matthew twenty eight twenty. And he says, I'll be with you always. From the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews thirteen eight. Thus, The thing that we see here, we will not experience these kinds of issues as long as we remain faithful unto Him. These concepts have brought us then to verse number 13, where again we ought to make note that a wording is not the best in a King James translation. For what is it that John saw? He says, I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven. The Greek word is eagle. John heard an eagle flying through heaven and noticed the words that were proclaimed loudly by this eagle. Three woes. Woe, woe, woe. But who will experience these woes? To the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels which are yet to sound. You see, there were seven trumpets given and we've only looked at four. This flying eagle says, Oh... There's three more to come, and the scene's going to get worse. The dramatic effects are going to be even more pronounced when we look at the next three. We will, in fact, in chapter 9, next Lord's Day evening, begin to see the fifth one. As we see what shall befall thee in the human family, the nature of those opposed to God in that way, how dramatic, how vivid, how strong it will be. But in conclusion to our lesson tonight, would it not be fair to say that we have been reminded of this 30 minute silence symbolically in heaven and great things were to follow among these great things the altar scene where the power of prayer is seen one more time how that it comes up as a sweet smelling incense before God and then we observe the fact that these four trumpets the first four were blown wormwood the seas a third of them becoming as it were blood The nature of this great mountain cast into the sea, as we think about each one of them, may we again learn that their explanation from Old Testament references has led us to note that God will not ignore evil. Whether it be Rome, whether it be a nation in our day, He will punish it. And it will be brought so in such a way that often physically experiences may involve suffering, But to those who are his own, spiritually they are secure and whole with him. Having been sealed, he can look forward to the greatness of that final harvest when they shall be plucked by the angels, if you will, and be able to be with him forevermore. Tonight, would you be with him forevermore if this world were to end tonight? If our Savior were to return or if your life should end in death? You see, we are not promised tomorrow. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth, Proverbs 27.1. If we could assist you tonight in obedience to the gospel, the Son of God was sin, so that those sealed, namely washed in the blood, Revelation 7.14, would not endure these things. Being washed in the blood is obedience to the gospel, and living faithfully with Him is that descriptive of your life. If you have never named the sweet name of Jesus as your Savior... You need to do that tonight. Believe Him. He is the Son of God. Believe His Word.